Welcome to the Creative Condition Podcast, the show where I, Ben Talon, illustrator and writer, invite people from the creative industry and far beyond to share their story of creativity, both the nature and the nurture, the chaos and the calm. Creativity is a fundamental pillar of human happiness, something I'm increasingly fascinated by and so often misunderstood. So little by little, I hope to build an archive of fascinating stories, experiences and tips to help you maximise yours. The show is supported by Illustration X. Go and take a look at their incredible global range of illustration and animation portfolios now at illustrationx.com. If you like the music for the show, go and listen to Dirty Freud over on Spotify and all good music platforms now. Hello and welcome to the show. My name is Ben Talon. I'm your host. How are you doing, guys? I hope you're well. I hope you're good. Today, I am joined by Adelaide Demoa. Adelaide is awesome. I met her when I shared a studio in the same facility as her at Second Floor Studios in London during my time living there between... 2014 and 2017 and we got on really well and Adelaide interviewed me for a a little channel she was doing at the time and we got on there and I loved her work but since I left London her work has evolved in the most spectacular way. Adelaide has gone from being a, uh, a painter and working with drawing and traditional media which was brilliant stuff into performance art and her lifelong project confronting the coloniser. We're going to get more into that in a moment, but big thank you to the founder supporter of the show, illustrationx.com. You can check out their global range of illustrators and animators now, illustrationx.com. Great, guys. Been here since day one. Please do go and do that. Um, how did you find the recent episodes? Hector Ayuso, founder of Off Festival. Big episode. Good feedback. Hector's a lovely guy and he does a lot of great work for our industry through the festival and around all the work that he does. Now based in Mexico City, our festival takes place in Barcelona and we are coming up on the 22nd year of running it. I mean, it's cherished and loved in our visual communication industry. Going to be speaking there for the first time, debuting my new talk, Just Fucking About. That's the title of it. It comes from something James Brown said on a recent episode of this show when he talked about the importance of relaxing, having fun and having a laugh to generate the best creative ideas no matter how heavy the topic. And that's the basis of my talk. Very excited to deliver it. I'm going to be doing a lot of things at the festival. Maybe a little bit of artwork. You might see me somewhere. If you're going, come and say hello. Uh, so Adelaide to Moa. So Adelaide's, the the transition from the painting and drawing work she was doing into her confronting the coloniser work, it just knocked me for six. The the switchover in energy and passion and gravity of what she was doing was pretty spectacular. And I wanted to talk to her about that, about what it meant to explore her British Ghanaian heritage and get into looking at the old, what is now Ghana and what was then the British Gold Coast back in uh, murkier times. Looking into her ancestry, channeling that through um, Sankofa, which is going to explain what that is in Ghanaian culture. This is a, a blinder of an episode and I wanted to have this chat for a good while, but because of COVID, because of everything that came from it, I had to wait and let Adelaide's work evolve before we could properly have the chat, but here we are today. I'd love your feedback. Hello at bentallon.com or at bentallon on the social media. This is really powerful stuff and um, I would love to hear what you make of it. 
I'm very keen to hear about other projects where people have switched from one medium to another and just activated something that they weren't able to get to with their previous media because I think it's really important to listen to our souls and to be sympathetic to that and not trap ourselves in something we once did because it once worked. I think there's a great life lesson in that and Adelaide's example shows that in scintillating fashion. Do go and check out the support of the show, illustrationx.com now. Thank you for listening. If you do want to support the show, the best way to do that for free and very quickly is leave me a little review on whatever platform you listen to these to. Um, subscribe and share, tell a friend. Get it out there. It would mean the world. Enjoy this conversation with Adelaide Demoa. So, I mean, I, I haven't moved that far away from where I was raised, to be honest. I was born in Greenwich, South East London, like near our old, old studio, the old British District Hospital. Um, and I uh, started life at uh, these flats very close to the Cutty Sark, like literally where the Cutty Sark is, those brown flats there. Mm. That's where I lived until I was six. Oh. Um, really nice, right? So looking, overlooking um, the Thames, and then um, to, both parents are, are Ghanaian. Um, they uh, were born and raised in Ghana and met here in the 70s. In the late uh, 75, they met. Um, they got married within three months of meeting each other, which was so weird to me. And I was born the following year, um, and. Um, yeah, so from there we moved to Woolwich um, and the primary school I went to there um, was not great. I had a lot of really serious bullying, racist bullying as well. Um, and uh, I've got some crazy stories from, from that school. But um, because of that bullying, initially I was quite a gentle child. Um, and but very physically very strong but gentle and I didn't like the idea of hurting people yet these boys were beating me on a semi-regular basis and sure. calling me the n-word and telling me to go back to my own country and all of that kind of stuff and um but it, it took for at the, at the time I mean we're talking the 80s um and at the time no one was really well, the teachers, or maybe not the teachers, but the, you know, you had dinner ladies, mm. yeah. Um, and they weren't paying attention when I was getting, when this was happening to me. And, and so I was reporting it and they were just brushing it off like it was not a big deal. Um, and I was coming back to my dad and saying, this is happening in school. And, you know, to, to the extent that people, these boys would like, would run past me and punch me in the head and go n-word go back to your own country their favorite what their favorite thing to say actually can i, can I just say it yeah their favorite thing to say was one of their favorite things was black packy which i don't understand oh that doesn't make any sense and the other favorite thing they used to say was nigger bitch go back to your own country uh i was like what well, i was born here <laughs> what are you talking about mm. um and yeah, so on a semi-regular basis, they would throw me around and pass me, like, uh, literally form a circle, pass me around the circle, slap me around, punch me in the head, call me names, kick me, all that kind of stuff. And and I felt completely helpless. I mean, I was a kid, we were talking six, seven years old. Um, and But I remember vividly 
this one specific boy whose name I can't remember, his, his first name is Michael, I can't remember his last name, but his face I'll never forget. And um, he was probably a head and shoulders taller than me, right? And I remember going up this, so I was going to go up the stairs to, um, to go back to class after the bell rang. And he was walking past, he was wearing this black bomber jacket. And as he was walking past me, he turned around and he looked me up and down and he said, nigger bitch, go back to your own country. And he hadn't said it, it's not like he hadn't said any of that, but he'd said that and worse before. But I lost it. I lost it. And that's the my first time I remember losing it. And I said, if you're brave, come and say that to my face. And he came, and literally within spitting distance from my face. And as he's saying it, his brain spit in my face. I punched this man, so, boy, man, he's a boy, he's, he was probably nine or something. Mm-hmm. I punched him so hard in the head um, that it brought his, you know, I kind of jumped and punched him so that his head went down, right? And I was able to grab his head and knee him and then he fell and then I jumped on him and mm. I just, I, I think I blacked out, it was just, I saw red yeah. kicking him. Um, and, I, and I'm not condoning violence, but this is just what happened. Um, and four teachers had to come and pull me off him and carry me up to the headmaster's office. And it was at that point that the headmaster at the time, Mr. Gladwell, I remember what he was wearing and everything so long ago, but I remember it so vividly. And he sat in front of me at his, behind his desk and he folded his arms and he called my dad. And I had to sit there and wait for my dad to come. My dad came, my dad sat there and folded his arms and looked at Mr. Gladwell and said, you see, I've been telling you that this, I didn't know that my dad had been calling the school, but because every time my dad would say, just defend yourself, defend yourself, defend yourself, don't let them take the mick out of you. Mm. And he said, I've been calling you and saying this has happened. You wanted to pretend like, as if nothing was happened until she did something to one of your boys, then you've decided to call me. I'm taking my child from this school. And, um, yeah, so from that point, um, he moved me to Notre Dame down the road, which is a Catholic school. Um, and, but the thing after that, that taught me that nobody could bully me any, anymore and nobody bullied me ever again. And I, and I, I kind of became a defender of um, people who were being bullied and I was able to straddle the cool kids and the not cool kids. Because mm. I'm a bit geeky, but the, at the same time, the cool kids kind of liked me as well. So people knew that they just couldn't take the mickey out of me. Mm. Um, and I got this reputation for being fair, but don't. You know, Adelaide's nice and smiley and friendly, but don't take the mickey out of mm. me. Because you will get battered. Um, <laughs> but, it's kind of important to establish that sometimes. And, it, and it's, a, it's sad that you were pushed to a point where that had to be physical. But, but then that's a fight or flight instinct. Mm-hmm. My only ever adult fight. I was 16 and some guy just out of prison got in my face no reason whatsoever it's completely spontaneous never seen it, never felt anything like that red that you described there awful feeling you know completely went to like to jelly afterwards complete yeah. adrenaline like yeah two weeks of looking over my shoulder in the street it's terrifying you know it's, it's, it's a very ugly experience and I don't you know I don't have the perspective of being someone who would be marginalised because of their skin colour horrendous you know and um I, just, you know, I can't even start to comprehend what that must have felt like. Um, uh, where do I go from there? I mean, 
that must have put so many stripes on you, on you as a character. And as, did it give you more confidence, or was it something you? I don't know. How did you feel about that moving forward? Definitely gave me confidence. I think um, prior to that, I. I I don't know. I don't know if I would describe myself as a meek. I definitely wasn't meek, but I was um, just fun, a bit naive, you know, um, and just just wanted to have fun. Um, and but after that, I just knew that nobody could bully me again, you know. Mm. And so that carried me forward for to the rest of my life up until now. Um, and uh, my dad actually put me in taekwondo classes. My sis and my sisters in taekwondo classes. I think it was yeah, it was after that, um, and we didn't do it for a very long time. But um, but that also gave me uh, an, another layer of 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 confidence that I could defend. It, I could defend myself if I had to, uh, and um, and and that was another situation where somebody tried to bully me, and that fight or flight instinct kicked in and I ended up punching her so hard and this was a grown woman as well I was like 14 15 at mm. this time and you know when you're sparring in martial arts you're not actually supposed to be touching each other and yeah. hurting right and she was beating me and the teacher put me with her on purpose and, um, and she hit me so hard in my my um, then I was just starting to hit puberty so my, my breasts were just starting to grow and they're really painful any woman woman um, <laughs> who's gone through puberty would know it's really painful when they just start growing and she punched me hard there and again that thing kicked in and I did that and you know you're trained to punch in a certain way and I just punched her and she was short so I got her in the mouth this woman must have been at, at least 25 at that point so to be beating up a child like that is ridiculous embarrassing yeah and I've still got the scar on my fist from when that happened and um, I think it knocked some of her teeth out her, that her mouth was bleeding and everything I hit her that hard she never came back to that class again um, <laughs> and um, yeah so I say all of that say that I'm not I wasn't a violent child but I was somebody who would defend myself if I had to but only if I really really had to mm-hmm. Um, the secondary school was a girls' school, um, St Ursula's girls, a convent school for girls, and I had a great time there. And that's where I was, I was doing the whole straddling the cool kids and the, the bullying kids. Um, I had friends on both sides. And, um, yeah, I mean, I, I don't know where to go. Yeah, university, um, well, sixth form, I went to a grammar school in Bexley Heath. University was to Kingston in Surrey. So again, not too far from home, because in Ursula's was in Greenwich, the, the sixth form was in Bexley Heath. Um, Kingston is not far, but I, I, I went and I stayed there for university and I had a great time at uni. Mm. It was fantastic, but I didn't actually go there. Um, I, I think I spent a, lot, a long time not knowing what the hell I wanted to do with my life. So I started off thinking, mm, what would most impress my dad? Accounting and finance, because he's an accountant. So I did one year of accounting. Yeah. And halfway through the year, I called my dad and I was like, I don't want to do this anymore. I don't like it. He was like, you started it, so you better finish. <laughs> so, 
So I went, I secretly went to my teacher and I, uh, one of the lecturers and I was like, I want to switch courses. And they said, well, what do you want to do? And I said, I don't know. Was, what do you like? I like science. Um, and my, what's your favorite science subject? Biology. So I switched to applied biology. But they said, you can't switch unless you pass accounting and finance first year. So then you get a diploma. So mm. I did that without telling my parents. The letter went home to my parents' house, addressed to me, but my dad opened it. And uh, so this is summer holidays. And my dad, my dad um, called me to um, my parents' bedroom and my parents stood in front of me and they made me read the letter out in front of them. <laughs> oh dear. <laughs> yeah, so that was kind of traumatic. But um, I mean, what could they? It was too late, it was done. They said, You spoil your life. I was like, oh. I my life. I'm switching to applied biology. You're never going to make money with biology. What are you going to do? Be a research scientist. Well, what's wrong with that? Well, your uncle, you know, he's a professor of biology at, at Oxford University and he never made any money. Uh, well, life is not all about making money. Maybe I just want to be happy. Yeah. Anyway, um, yeah. So, um, but then I graduated in 99 with a BSc Honours in Applied Biology and, um, and immediately went on to become a medical rep. I considered medicine briefly because, you know, if you do a life science degree, you can take... You, you have to pass an entrance exam and then you can knock off three or four years or something of the medical degree. Um, but then a friend of mine, this guy called Imran, who was in the year above me, uh, used to come and pick me up um, after classes, uh, after lectures, in this really nice car. I was like, how did you get that car? Like, you've just graduated. How are you driving this amazing car? And, um, and he said, oh, because I'm a medical rep. I was like, what the hell is that? And he explained it. And I was like, oh, that sounds really glamorous. I want to do that. <laughs> and so that's how I ended up my first job working um, out of university. Uh, well, first I had to get my driving license. Um, and then I worked for AstraZeneca, which at the time was the biggest pharmaceutical company in the world. It was very glamorous, a lot of fun, nice car, travel, you know, went to Miami, Orlando, um, and, um, and then I got diagnosed with endo in, endometriosis in 2000, um, and then I moved to another company, Shire Pharmaceuticals, um, and I mean, I'd been struggling with um, really bad period pains from when I was about 17, and they didn't know what it was. Even while I was at university, I was um, I was um, in and out of hospital. I missed my whole second year exams um, because I was in hospital. Um, and yeah, they were worried that I wasn't going to pass because I was just always in and out of hospital. Well, not always, but often in mm. hospital. And. Um, uh, I only got my diagnosis because I was in, uh, yeah, that was when I was with AstraZeneca. We were in Orlando, Florida, having the most amazing time. I remember I was in pain on the flight going there and I was taking painkillers, just wasn't going. 
Um, and I just soldiered on. I just kept on taking painkillers. And at the time I was taking Feminax, and which is a combination of, I think, paracetamol and ibuprofen that's supposed to be good for period pains. I wasn't doing anything. I wasn't even on my period. So there was no reason for me to be in any pain. And then um, I think it was the second or third day, came down in the lift and basically just couldn't walk. I had to just sit down. Like my legs just wouldn't carry me. I was just in too much pain. So they ended up getting me an ambulance. And then the doctor I saw at the hospital there then said, um, this could either be, I remember his face as well. It's so weird, like the things that you remember about these incidences. You could either have um, this thing called pelvic inflammatory disease, but that relates to multiple STDs. I was like, I've never had an STD. So then he said, uh, endometriosis. I was like, what the hell is that? And he, and he explained it. Um, or um, cancer of the uterus, but you're too young for that. Because uh, at the time I was, what, 21, 22? So, um, so he said, as soon as you get back to London go and see a gynaecologist and specifically state those things and get them to do a keyhole investigation, mm. a laparoscopy, and because that's the only way that you're going to get a differential di diagnosis. So that's what I did. I came back to mm. London. And luckily for me, I had private medical cover through the company. If I went on the NHS, uh, that would have been waiting forever. So I went private and uh, they did a laparoscopy and that's when I got my diagnosis and everything changed. After that, um, but that's part of how how I came to art and creativity. I, my wife has endometriosis too, so I've seen mm. seen how painful that looks like. It's horrible. I mean, like you know, several times it's on kind of platforms and tube stations, just like, like exactly what you described there, unable to move. Yeah. Like, and it's horrible to see. I mean, God knows what it's like to feel, but um, rough stuff. Yeah, and what life changing thing experience too yeah yeah, yeah. It, it changed it, it changed completely changed my trajectory because um at the time i mean i what, what i didn't say was that um my two favorite subjects at secondary school were art and science mm. right so i got three a's with distinction my gcse's and one of them was art and one of them was double science it was double science and i don't know how they do it now and um and so then when I was switching at university, um, to, art didn't occur to me. <laughs> and there's no way I could get away with doing an art degree. My parents would kill me in my sleep. Right? <laughs> so literally, because they said to me, um, I, 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 this, I even forgot this bit. When I was in primary school and we were choosing um, secondary school, I said to my parents, I want to go to drama school. I want to go to Italy Conti at the time, which was a big um, stage school, or I think it was Silver Year Young or something like that. I want to go to one of those. And this, why do you want to go and, and, and do that? Um, and I said, because, you know, I'm interested in dance, drama, um, all of these creative things. That's what I'm really interested in. And I, and I like painting and drawing and all of that. And, and they said, we don't want any performing um, person for a child you know you're you can go and follow an academic path then when you finish your academic studies you can do whatever you want um, because once you've done that nobody can take it away from you um, and that's because their mindset is 
there, there are immigrants who came here in the mid-70s and, um, and for them, their way through, especially as a, 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 a black person in the UK, was education. If you've got an education, if, you, if you've got an, a specifically an academic background, that cannot be taken away from you, mm-hmm. which I fully understand. But as a yeah. kid, I did not get it. I was no. really not very happy with that. So um, I knew that I couldn't get away with <laughs> with uh, um, doing art at university. I didn't know anything about it. I didn't know anybody who was doing that. Um, and I didn't know how you could make a living doing that. There was I had no conception of that. But because of my GCSE art education and my teacher was amazing, this lady called Miss Holly, um, I, I discovered Frida Kahlo at, what, 15 or something, doing my GCSEs through going to, well, through studying her in class and through going to muse, a museum to see an exhibition called Mexico Day of the Dead. Um, and um, her work was featured heavily and through discovering how her work was so autobiographical and and at the time I wasn't struggling with illness then but um, I somehow resonated with her way of using her uh, well kind of inserting herself into and her narrative into her artwork in a way that when you look at her work now, it's almost like all the uh, you can read her biography, her biography through her her artwork, and 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 the fact that she was still painting when she was in bed in a cast, and all of that kind of stuff was really interesting to me mm. and very very inspiring. And so I continued to do that. I got into this habit of um, expressing myself through writing things um, and. Um, um, and drawing and painting, uh, and and it and it was a way of dealing with my teen angst, which sounds so pathetic to say now, but it was so important to me at the time. And I continued that all through university. Everybody who knew me knew oh, Adelaide likes drawing and painting, mm. and she does this these weird things. She paints humans in weird ways with hearts outside of bodies and that kind of stuff, mm-hmm. um, and. Um, my friends and family who knew me well would be able to read what was going on in those things, right? And um, so I continued it through my working life as well. So then when I got sick, those times was when I really fell on the on the artwork. And I feel like Frida Kahlo taught me to do that. Mm. Um, and, um, yeah, so then when I had my diagnosis and then I was I was off work for a few months after I had that surgery... Um, the initial surgery and at the age of 22 they put me in a, a, a menopause a chemically induced menopause with these drugs I don't know if your wife has had to go through that as well um, but these they, these drugs they call them GnRH analogs which suppress um, the uh, female hormones which cause the the pain essentially um, and so I went through a temporary chemically induced menopause at the age of 22 for three months, which helped my body to rid itself of the lesions that were causing the pain. 
Um, and then I was able to get back to a normal life after that. But they grow back after time, so you have to keep on going through okay. these cycles of treatment, which was how it, they dealt with me at the time. Anyway, um, so I, because that happened so early on in my life, I think my creativity got quite bound up in um, pain. <laughs> um, and and creativity so I, I kind of got to a point where I even saw my womb as a seat of my creativity because I found myself to be most creative when I was I was in pain mm. um, yeah that's really interesting I mean there's there's um, quite a chapter in the book I'm working on about adversity and creativity and how people you know use these challenges in their own life um, in, in interesting ways like that's a great example it's a very interesting way of and it's catharsis isn't it you know it's it's I mean it's always my way of addressing the, the insurmountable things in my life mm -hmm. to either write through them or you know offload them into some fictitious more extreme character you know and uh, <laughs> Or the drawing, or just that, or the belonging I get from the societies within the arts. Yeah, I've always found ma real magic, you know. Um, so, did you? Did, what was there a time? Was there a point when you started to think actually, oh, this is what I want to do now? Was as a career, or was it a gradual evolution? Yeah, it was a gradual evolution, and it came later. So, the diagnosis was two thousand. I I stayed with um, Shy Pharmaceuticals until two thousand and five. And excuse me, the, the the switch came in two thousand and five when, uh, sadly, I had been sick for quite some time. After I had had, I was doing so well in that company. I literally had there was a point in time when I had two or three promotions, one after the other, and. Um, my new boss was looking at putting me into a management training program um, and I got one of the promotions they announced when I was we were on conference in Miami and it was so glamorous and oh, it was so much fun we stayed at this gorgeous hotel called Miami Oriental um, Cindy Crawford was staying there Prince was there seriously it was insane to be that kind of age and to be seeing all of that sort of stuff and yeah. then all of a sudden, the thing licked me down again, this endo. Um, and I think it's because I was just doing too much. I've now come to realise that when I'm doing too much, I mean, I was I was running around being this super rep. Um, I was going to the gym at six o'clock in the morning before work. Uh, and I was having evening meetings with, with doctors uh, till eight, nine, ten o'clock at night. Then getting up six o'clock in the morning and doing it all again the next day. And I wasn't stressed at all. It was fun, but it was. I think it was too much for my body, and my body just went. Just one day, it was like, "Nah, you need to sit down." <laughs> and um, and I again, it's another one of those days that I remember really clearly where I was sitting in the car. Uh, so I went to the gym. I even remember what I was wearing that day. I went to the gym early in the morning, came out sat in the car to drive to go to my next appointment and all of a sudden I just like felt so sleepy and I couldn't control it 
and then the pain started to come. So then I had to roll down my seat, lock the door, and just have a nap, right? And I set my alarm to have a nap for, like, a, a power nap for, like, an hour. I still had time before um, I was supposed to see my next appointment. And, um, and then the next thing I remember, like, people were crowding around the car, banging on the window, trying to get me to wake up because they thought um, something had happened to me because I just was not responding at all. Um, and then I woke up suddenly, it was, must have been about three hours later or something. I was like, what the hell? And my boss had been calling mm-hmm. um, and, um, and I told her what had happened and I, I reassured everybody that I was, I was okay. I just had to reorientate myself so I was safe to drive home. And she said, just go home, and go and see your doctor. So I went home. And, um, and then I went to the doctor and yeah, I'd, I, was, I was then, I think I had another procedure. So yeah, this was 2005. And then I was, I was off, the, the thing just wouldn't calm down. Just there was nothing that was getting it under control this time. So I think I'd been off for about five months or so. And during that time, I was, I was painting and drawing prolifically like, the time I had a flat in Greys in Essex and all my walls were covered in paintings. Um, and, um, and then, I don't know, it's just crept up on me. Um, it got to a point where, like, when you're in full-time employment and you're on long-term sick, after a while your statutory, statutory sick pay runs out. Um, and even though I was technically still employed, I wasn't getting my salary in the same way. So then I had to go on to disability living allowance and all of this. It was really stressful because I had a mortgage to pay. Mm. Um, and that only paid for the, um, for the interest on the mortgage. So I was getting behind. I was, it was really intense. Um, but the thing that kept me going was the, was the painting and, um, and then friends and family started buying the work. Oh, how much for that? I really like it. I don't know, hundred pounds, 200 pounds, you know, and people started buying it and I don't know, I just had this light bulb moment and I was like, what am I doing? This is what I should be doing. This feels right. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, re- I remember having a conversation with my best friend and saying to her, I'm going to be an artist. This, that's what I am, so that's what I'm going to do. She was like, are you mad? <laughs> are you mad? And I remember I was pacing up and down the living room. She's on the phone going, Adelaide, I did A-level art. You did GCSE. What makes you think that you can just get up and just be an artist? What, are you going to go to university? Are you going to go and do, you know, are you going to go and get further education? And I was like, I don't have the money to do that. And she was like, how are you going to do it then? Do you know? Do you have any contacts in the art world? Do you even know what art world is? Mm. You know, I mean, this is two thousand and five, so the art world then wasn't what it is now. Do you see what I mean? And um, social media wasn't mm. like what it is now. Just, there was just about the time I was on MySpace and Facebook. I was going to say most people didn't really start on Facebook till two thousand five. Exactly. Yeah. So, so then she was like, "You're mad." you're mad it's not gonna work it's not gonna work I was like watch me watch me because I think I'm just that kind of person if someone says you can't do it I'm definitely doing it so um yeah but this shows how naive I was 
and how I knew nothing <laughs> and no one was I decided right so I've got loads of artwork I mean my whole house is covered in the stuff and it's not bad people are buying it so what I'm gonna do I'm going to get the work professionally photographed got this guy to come and photograph I think I paid him 150 pounds or something photographed everything put it onto a CD-ROM can you imagine CD-ROM <laughs> CD-ROM no CD-ROMs anymore boy yeah. put it onto a CD-ROM and um, and printed the pick the pictures and put them into some a folder uh, and and then I went to this event called Mind of a Millionaire. Can you imagine? This is so embarrassing to even say it, but it's part of my story, so it <laughs> is what it is. Um, I went to this event called Mind of a Millionaire in XL in Docklands, and um, and there I met Simon Woodruff, who was the uh, founder and CEO of Yo Sushi, and. This guy called Alexander Omosu, who's R&B ringtones um, millionaire at the time, um, and there was all this press about this guy. So these people were doing talks about, you know, how to have the mind of a millionaire. Mm. And uh, I thought, well, if I can re if I can meet these rich people, then maybe they'll want to buy my work, <laughs> <laughs> right? And uh, and then um, and then. Uh, the most important person in in that situation who I met was this man called Emil Emiabata. I'll come on to him in a minute. In a minute, he was a fledgling businessman, right? Um, and he's the only person who grabbed hold of my portfolio and said, "This is interesting. We should talk." The other two, Simon, Simon, and Alexandra, Alexander. Um, well, I go, oh, yeah, nice to meet you. But Simon gave me his phone number and said, call me. And I, so I called him and I had several conversations with him, actually. And, and he was really nice. And he said, um, look, go out there and live. Yeah. Do your work. Live a life. Have some experiences. And then he said, I don't know about the art world, but I know about the speaker world. So, like, if you go out there and, and live and build a story, then you can come back to this world and you can give talks and you can make some proper money. Mm. And that can maybe subsidise your, what you're doing with your, your artwork. You know, you can, you can be making a thousand, two thousand pounds a talk. And people like them, they were making, like, 50,000 plus wow. a talk. Like, they're making serious money yeah. talking. Um, and... Um, some people even make up to... I remember seeing... Oh, that reminds me. When I was at AstraZeneca, um, do you remember that runner, Roger Black? He was always getting second. Yeah. Really handsome, tall guy. He came and gave a talk to us. As, and this is as a sales team. They paid him crazy money. I'm talking like a, like, like a hundred-something thousand pounds to come and speak to us for, what, two hours give this, this motivational speech about how he never gave up, you know, um, and he charmed all the women in the room. <laughs> but he was, he was very handsome, much more handsome in real life. 
Um, but yeah, really, but really engaging speaker. But you know, those people mm. they can. If you've got a serious story and you're a bit of a celebrity, you can charge proper money to go yeah, and talk. Especially at, at that, I don't know how it is now, but at that time, and companies, those kinds of companies had serious money. Anyway, so yeah, so and when he said that, I remembered about Roger Black coming and 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 talking and and hearing whispers of how much he was getting paid. I was like, oh. Okay, all right then. Um, so then I then spoke to Emil, Emil Emiabata, and um, he said to me, I think you're ready to have a solo exhibition. I said, I don't think so. All these works are small works, and, and who am I going to... I don't know anybody in this art world, you know. Who am I going to um, invite to to come and look at the work. I don't, I don't think I'm ready. He said, no, you're definitely, you're definitely ready. You're definitely ready. I'm going to help you do it. I was like, okay. Um, so then um, he said, you're going to have to make a new work though. Big work, impressive work. I said, I don't know. I don't know how to do that. Um, the biggest work that I made was probably like A3 or something. Mm. Um, so he said, look, just do it. So we came up we came up with this ridiculous concept called <laughs> God, this is actually embarrassing. Um, came up with this ridiculous concept called Black Brits, which was where I did this series of portraits, and I'm not a portrait artist at all, right? Um, but I attempted this series of portraits where I switched people's skin colours. So I had like British icons. So I had a, a white version of Trevor MacDonald where I put my own hair because at the time I had a big afro. So I'd, like, when I would comb my hair and save the hair like, that fell out and use it to construct the hair. on the, the, So it was this white man with, a, with an afro. Um, and, uh, but he still looked like Trevor MacDonald features-wise. Then there was or Sir Trevor MacDonald. Then there was um, a black Kate Moss. That one didn't really look like her. Uh, there was a black David Beckham. There was a white Naomi Campbell. There was a black Princess Diana. And oh, it was so corny, but, um, <laughs> uh, but it was fun. And so we did this, and, and um, he managed to get this man called, oh, such a kind man, I, I should go back and see him, Charlie Allen. So this man called Charlie Allen had a boutique called Charlie Allen's Boutique. I think it might be still in Islington, on Islington High Street, like in this kind of courtyard area, this gorgeous space. And he was a friend of his, and so he offered for me to use that space as a gallery to do the exhibition. So we did that. And my sister did my PR, my youngest sister, Edna, she did the PR. Managed, we had uh, BBC News, Channel 5 News, I think someone mentioned it on LBC Radio. Um, no, I think I know. Someone mentioned it on LBC Radio. Um, and then all these other small TV channels up and down the country as well. Um, and um, so it got a decent amount of press. Um, and it was it was scary because it was there was all of a sudden all this attention. Um, but it was mainstream, not art world. Mm. Um, and 
it was scary and exciting and I really wasn't ready for it. So that was my first solo exhibition in 2006. But prior to that, I had had one group show at this film festival in Clapham. Um, and, and, and then after that, I kind of retreated because I started having weird stalker things. Um, and I, I also felt like I, I just really wasn't, the work wasn't ready, I wasn't ready and not a single work sold. So I knew that, nah, you know, you really need to go back to the drawing board, love. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? You have to go there to find that out sometimes, yeah, though, don't you? Yeah, and so, yeah, so that's what happened. Um, went back to the drawing board and just kept on painting and kept on putting on my own exhibitions and inviting people via MySpace and Facebook invites. Do you remember mm. Facebook invites? The, the back in the day, Facebook invites. And there was one exhibition where I, I actually designed... That was supermodels. I actually designed an uh, invite and posted them to people. Mm. And it's not that long ago in the grand scheme of things, but it is. I mean, it's, it's like 17 years ago. Yeah. <laughs> but there's, so there's something that what I'm interested in. So your parents were Ghanaian and those, those early adversities, so the, the bullying and the horrible stuff you had to experience there. But would you say that the kind of... I'm interested in you because you became a middle ground person, like you said, mm. between between the kind of louder kids and maybe the, the gentler ones. Do you think that's something that helped you in terms of a compass when you started to explore the art world? It sounds like, so by going to the, you know, the millionaire kind of <laughs> mindset kind of thing, that it's, that's quite a sideways move. So if you'd gone down an art degree route, I, you probably wouldn't have been doing that. And maybe you would, I don't know, but 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 I find it interesting that you went down such an approach. It takes confidence to do that, to go and talk to those people and when you're starting out with something without the formal education. Yeah. Do you think there's an aspect of that, your experiences and your finding your place there as someone who wouldn't take any shit that helped you to get that confidence? Do you know what I hadn't considered that before? I hadn't considered that before and I, I was attributing that confidence to um the fact that working at um, AstraZeneca and Shire Pharmaceuticals, especially AstraZeneca, at the time was the like 100% the biggest pharmaceutical company in the world. And so they put serious money into some proper sales training. So like the best in the world sales training. Um, and so, and that sales training combined with scientific knowledge and plus the training that they gave us for the knowledge that we had to impart to the doctors we had to see, because I had to see people who were professors. <laughs> do, you, do you know what I mean? Yeah. And by the time I left um, AstraZeneca, my job was a hospital sales specialist, which meant I was dealing with professors at a very high level. I was dealing with surgeons. So I had to know my stuff. And sometimes I would have to have debates about clinical papers which are difficult to read. Do you see what I mean? So yeah. the, the kind of presentations, the level that I was doing presentations at was a very, very high level. Um, so when it came to approaching people to talk about art, it felt like fun. Mm. It didn't feel like the same kind of... I would never say I was, I was ever intimidated even going to see any of those people. And these are... These are um, really serious people at that time and I was in my 20s 
So yeah, so for me, this that that this the whole art world thing felt like fun. It was it was like a joy to wake up and to and to go and network with people and to go to exhibitions and 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 get to know people and all the interviews I was doing, all mm. of that was fun. It wasn't remotely intimidating, but I hadn't actually considered my background in terms of the bullying mm. as maybe the foundation for that, possibly, um, because it definitely it definitely gave me confidence that nobody could push me around um, and, and also gave me uh, a reputation among people who knew me that, they, that uh, I was nice and friendly and approachable, but don't go past a certain point. Yes. Yeah. Once I switch, I switch. And I'm not talking about violence. I'm course, just talking about course. defending just, myself. Yeah. yeah. Um, yeah. It's interesting. So again, one of the reasons I asked that, if it, this is something that seems to come up on various chats I have with people. So Alan McGee, who managed Oasis and ran Creation Records in the 90s, he told me that you know his, his dad used to beat him quite badly when he was growing up in Glasgow. Mm. He said, of course, it's something you wouldn't ever choose to have. You would get rid of it if you could. But actually... The upside to that is that when he moved to London, again, through his passion for music, decided to start trying to manage bands and be a part of that industry, is that the volume was completely turned down. So whereas normally he might have been quite intimidated getting into a scene that he knew little about, because of that horrible experience, for him, it meant that this was, you know, there was no intimidation there, or there was no kind of, he saw nothing in those people to be afraid of, yeah. because he'd had a lot worse. And yeah. uh, so I just... Sometimes I think it can be subconscious, or maybe it's just a, it becomes a part of your armor, so to the point where it's maybe not even a conscious thing. But actually, that's it's, there's got to be a degree of that, isn't there? When you've had experiences that are heightened like that, and they're quite, you know, awful. Um, then I don't know. It's just, just an interesting thought. But yeah. And there's also training as well. I mean, <laughs> it's it's interesting that you mentioned um, this guy who was beaten by his um, dad growing up. Um, my family, um, I, I'm the eldest of three girls and my parents are very strict growing up. They didn't take any nonsense at all. And I would say that I was a relatively, compared to my sisters, definitely, I was relatively good. Um, but I got some quite severe punishments in terms of beatings as well. Mm. Um, you know, but that's kind of, especially at that time, 80s. That was kind of a typical, um, uh, certainly Ghanaian parent thing to do. That's just like all the cousins. That's just how it was. If you were naughty, you got beats. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> you, yeah. you know, um, and and we didn't see it as uh, we didn't see it as abusive. We saw it as as a disciplinary thing that mm -hmm. you knew that you don't go past a certain line because you will get disciplined yeah. and it's going to hurt, <laughs> right? So there was that kind of um, fear and respect for the parents. Well, maybe fear is a bit of an exaggeration, but a deep respect for the parents um, and a definite knowing of right from wrong. Because, yeah. I mean, there's certain things that even now, I mean, my parents are in their 70s now, <laughs> you know, that there's still that level of, of respect or, uh, where I, I, I um, won't 
say or do certain things in front of them. Just well, most people are like that anyway. But there's still that kind of respect yeah. there. That's there because of that foundation. Um, but I don't know. Maybe that that's my perspective. Um, but there are different levels of, of that kind of thing in terms of disciplining children. And do you know something? What's funny? I remember. It's kind of relevant, but not. Um, I I remember when Childline was launched. I, I think I was in primary school, and and all the kids were going back to their parents saying, "Yeah, you can't beat us now because we're going to call Childline." <laughs> <laughs> My parents were like, "Really? Okay, try. <laughs> Go and call them then. Let them come and take you." <laughs> wow. Fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. So did you would you so I'm interested now in the the lineage, the right word. So your work now draws heavily on your family history. Yeah. Was that something you were were you aware of that early on or is this something that you found through your art practice? It's definitely something I found through my art practice. Um, and it's very recent as well, because, yes, yeah, I'm talking 2015, mm. 16 is when I started doing that. Prior to that, I was just looking at various social issues, kind of stuff that was outside of myself. And, um, and at the process of going to that actually started from me having a mentor. Um, and I found mentors to be really important for me in my journey, but... My first official mentor is this man called uh, Simon Fredericks, who is, oh, he's a bit of a celebrity now. He's, a, he's an award-winning director, um, photographer, artist. And um, so he did this, this TV show called She's Got, She's Got to Have, no, um, They've Got to Have Us. Um, I can't remember what the British version was called. Um, anyway, those shows were on Netflix, so you can look it up and if you want to, if you're interested. Um, and he also did a, another Sky Arts TV show called Master of Photography a few years back. But um, he started that process by saying to me, um, "You keep on looking outside of yourself to your work, which is odd because you started from yourself, mm-hmm. right?" Like the way that I started from school all the way through um, university and working and um, my first few years as an as an artist or making art and really taking that seriously, where where I was starting from myself, myself putting myself at the center of the work without thinking about it. I was just doing that, and then I consciously started going away from that. And he said, why are you doing that? You need to put yourself at the centre of the work. And I didn't really understand what he meant. And I, I, and I was like, I don't, want to, I don't know what you mean. Um, and he was like, just let it marinate. And I, started, I was making self-portraits and making work that was specifically about my endometriosis and all this kind of stuff. And then um, I had a critique by uh, an um, artist called Rachel Ara, who was at Thameside. Mm well, second floor studios when we were there. Um, and she said, uh, and that, that critique was of this work called This Is Us, which was a series, again, completely outside myself, nothing to do with me. It was a series of um, paintings 
that were um, examining this really interesting relationship between um, this this woman that I met and um, she was in a thruple. <laughs> well, it wasn't technically a thruple. Uh, she was technically in a relationship with um, a trans man and they were engaged to be married. And she also had a, a relationship with uh, a woman who was her professional dance partner. So all of this, so this was 2015, all of this was, that whole world was new to me and I just found it so interesting and I interviewed them and I took photos of them doing this specific dance and I made this series of nine paintings that was just about them and their story and I was talking about love and passion and um, and and how um, what what does real love mean and how people engage with each other in those kinds of relationship setups and all of that kind of thing just because it was interesting to me, not because I was trying to say anything specifically, because I don't know anything to say mm -hmm. about that stuff. And and I, I quite liked the paintings that came out. I had a, a reasonably successful solo exhibition out of it. Um, and um, I asked her to critique the work. And she looked at it and she said, Adelaide, this work is not successful. I said, what do you mean? She said, and she, <laughs> she said... It's just not successfully saying what I know you want it to say or what I think you want it to say. And I just, I couldn't understand what she meant. But I, I knew, you know, when there was like a, I had this, this element of frustration in that I did feel like painting wasn't allowing me to adequately express myself as an artist. And I was putting it down to not having had training, right? So my approach to her to critique the work was because I'd never had a critique before, right? And I wanted to see if there was something I could learn from through that process. And I know she's raw, she's hardcore, right? You know her, she's hardcore. Mm -hmm. So I knew she was going to tell me the truth. And um, but I still couldn't really grasp what she was saying. And, she's, and she said... Like she said, the thing that that hit me the hardest was she said, um, I feel like there's more to you as an artist than just this picking up a paintbrush and painting figures. There's more, there's, that's not who you are. Mm. Um, and you need to find that thing and get it out somehow. I don't know, I don't know what that looks like. Mm -hmm. but you need, and, and she told me, look at Anna Mendieta, right? So I was like, oh, it was so painful to hear. It was like a kick in the guts, mm -hmm. but it was necessary. And um, so I thanked her. And then I spent the next few months in the studio in turmoil, researching, experimenting, throwing paint around, being a fake Jackson Pollock. And, <laughs> and, then, and then I ended up being a fake Eve Klein. Um, and then I started making these body print artworks. And then I interviewed Sokari Douglas Camp, who is this amazing sculptor. Um, and she is British Nigerian. She makes these sculptors, sculptures in the tradition of her um, ancestors in steel. 
right? Mm. And it's something that only men are supposed to do in Nigeria. Anyway, when I interviewed her, she's got this gorgeous studio that's attached to her house. Her husband is an architect and he built this studio next to their house. Anyway, I, I, I went to her house and I interviewed her. And then she started asking me about my work. And up until that point, that had never happened before. And um, she was like, she was really interested. So I was telling her about it. And she said, where are your parents from? And I said, they're from Ghana. She said, what languages do they speak? And I told her. And she said, you need to stop, put your language into the work. Because at that point, I was writing onto, the, onto my work. She said, why aren't you using your parents' language? Do you speak your parents' languages? No, I don't. I mean, I can understand bits, but I don't speak it. And she said, well, you should, that's, that's part of who you are. Think about putting that into the work. So I was like, okay. So I started doing that. Then I went to Ghana in 2016 and um, to see my mum. And she took me, I don't know, I had this, this hunger to see um, old photographs of family members, especially her, but my grandma as well. Mm. And I didn't dream in a million years that she was going to bring this photo. So the photo that she found, because my grandma was who I'm named after, actually, incidentally. Her name is also Adelaide. But my grandma was the kind of person who was obsessed with old photos. So she kept everything. Mm. But then there was a flood in the house and a lot of them got water damage. And the one photo that remained was this amazing photo of my grandma when she was a baby being held by her mum, who's called Amma. So my mum brought this photo and it's framed and she gave it to me. And I was like, oh my God, what is this? Who is this woman? She was so gorgeous and so strong looking and she was big. Apparently she was over six feet tall. She had these long fingers and she's holding the baby of my grandma. The photo was taken in 1920. My grandma was born in 1920. And um, I was like, no, I need to, t I don't know what I'm going to do with the photo, but I, I need this photo. So I just took a picture of it on my phone, just like an iPhone 5 or 6 at the time, whatever it was. And, um, and then I came home, I put it on my computer, and then I just started repeating it in the, so like at the time, that's the body prints, I started repeating those images in these body prints, kind of like making this, time capsule thing where there's this there's this her from 1920 and there's me and then I made these other ones where I, this Rachel gave me this pack of tiny photos from that same time period just randomly 1920 all of them from were from 1920 huh. but all of them were of random people in England and so then I st that started me thinking, because obviously 1920, it was under, Ghana was under, it wasn't Ghana then, it was British Gold Coast, it was under British colonial rule. And I was like, I wonder what kind of, I wonder if, if she was politically aware, I wonder if she had any conception of what Ghana could be now, right? Because when she was born, she would have been born into that, and so she wouldn't have had any conception of what it was like before the British came. Mm. Um, and, you know, my mum my went to school and was taught by white nuns, British nuns, right? So, 
Um, all of these thoughts were running around my head, so I just started, I just kept on repeating the image over and over and over and over again in the work. And I was interested in the fact that, you know, this is a photo of a photo that's then been put onto a computer and changed in a way to make the image more crisp and then printed and then using some kind of image transfer technique to get it onto a, a canvas. Mm. What does that mean? Do you see what I mean? So all of these things, I, I was so excited about using this photo. And, and then I went back to Ghana the following year, 2017, and then my uncle found this other photo, which is sometime in the 1800s, of my great-grandmother's parents. Mm. And they looked like royalty. <laughs> Seriously. There's an there's a, the image over there of them. Um, I'll get it. Yeah. This, this one, well, this is a cyanotype, and... Wow, that's incredible. So, well, you can't see the man in this one, but I'll show you on my phone. So, so that's the great-grandma, and that's her mum. Mm -hmm. um, and that's, the baby is my grandma. That's actually my mum in the, in the 60s. Oh, wow. She was like 15 years old in that picture. I love that picture. So there are like three generations in this one um, image. And uh, huh. yeah, it was, that was just me experimenting with the cyanotypes. Um, but yeah, I'll show you, I'll show you the, the picture of them on my phone, I'll find it and show it to you later. But um, yeah, so I, when I saw that, when, when my uncle brought out this photo, I was like, what? <laughs> what do you mean? Do you know when? He was like, I don't know, sometime in the late 1800s. I was like, that's insane. Yeah. Because when was photography invented? Photography was invented sometime in the, in the 1800s. In the, I think it was the middle 1800s. Yeah. 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 So I, 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 it just blew my mind. And then the fact that they looked like royalty, I was like, what's going on? Am I descended from royalty? What's happening? <laughs> you know, um, but yeah, it was really interesting and uh, now I can't even remember what the original question was. Well it's, it's about the roots of the, come from the coloniser yeah. and, 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 and at what point did you start to take an interest in your own roots? Yeah, uh, yeah, that was, that was the, that was the starting point, I was getting excited about those pictures. Did that give you a new zest because I mean you yeah. said you'd been working outside of yourself, this must have opened up a whole new path. Oh yeah, 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 so then when I, when I came back to London, um, I found different ways of just using the great-grandma image because there are, there are other connotations that are associated with that, that classical image of a mother and child um, that relate to religion, right? And um, my family is very religious. So my mum's my family is Jehovah's Witness and my dad's family are Roman Catholic. We were raised Roman Catholic, right? And, and, and so that relationship of Africans with missionaries and the relationship of the the missionaries with the colonizers well they were the colonizers you know um and how those things went hand in hand um and the relationship of religion and, and the slave trade all of these things were going up like well, i was losing my mind about this and um so i started doing more and more reading and i, I went to ebay and i put in a search on ebay on anything to do with the British Empire, um, specifically relating to so different searches. You know, you can save the searches and then you get notifications. Yeah. Um, and then that's when I had a notification about these 
out of print books that date back to the middle 1600s that are specifically talking about um, the, the British Empire and most of them are written from the point of view of people who were actively involved, involved in the colonial project. This CD-ROM, so weird to say now, but it's, and that was only 2018 when I yeah. found those. Um, cost me five pounds and there are 204 out of print books on there. So I started to work my way through those and again, my mind was blown. I was like, I need to use these somehow in the work. I don't know how yet. Um, and then I was approached by Open Space Contemporary and my friend Catherine Finity, who's a curator, who were working on this thing called Of Hosts and Guests. And they wanted me to, to come up with a performance relating to the subject of colonialism. And I was like, that's it. And that's how I came up with the, the concept of the Into the Mind of the Colonizer performance. And then, mm. it, then it grew from there. And now I'm at a point with that work where um, there's the colonizer performance and all of these works, including the massive piece I did called The Rebirth of Amma, which is where I've used the image of the great grandma multiple times on this work, which is three meters by four meters, something like that. Um, and it kind of looks like a textile work, but it's not. Um, and I've repeated that same process in another work which is uh to do with world war ii and my great uncle fought in world war ii that one is a collaboration with um david ajay who is a um a brilliant sound artist he's just a genius anyway um and yeah so then that brings us to to now where i've done multiple cyanotypes, I've lost count of the number of cyanotypes I've done now, where I've used that image over and over and over again in different ways, mixed it with the images of my, my mum, the great-grandparents, um, more, and, and now. So the colonizer work forms the basis of this new um, research that I'm doing, which is going to lead to a much larger project, which is like a... Um, a big video project um, but leading up to that I'm doing all of these other works as well as well as all of that reading um, and so now I'm at a point where these cyanotypes uh, will have some of the text from those colonizer texts and there's some that I'm working on downstairs I'll show you um, overlaid with maps as well as the imagery mm -hmm. so these colonial maps from 1800s early 1900s um, that are kind of delineating where the the, um, the British Empire had their territories. Um, and um, and then I've got some stamps. I'll show you stamps, actually. I've got some mm. up here. Um, some some colonial stamps. And, and I, just, I just bought this book, which is just this incredible book. I'm such a geek, I'll show you. <laughs> um, <laughs> okay, so um, these books... Oops. These books relate to. I'll say that again, just sorry, the noise. These books relate to the research. So, this one is called Bismarck, Europe and Africa, the Berlin Africa Conference of 1884 to 1885 and the Onset of Partition. So, this book, this book was written, um, there was a conference. In, eight, in 1985, which is 100 years post 
this um, Scramble for Africa conference that happened in Berlin, which is where Otto Bismarck got all, all the European powers together to decide how they're going to divide up Africa. So the books, the 204 out-of-print books, that was it. When I was approached by Catherine and Open Space Contemporary to come up with a performance for this, um, it made so much sense to use the coloniser texts, the, those books, um, in some way. So I don't even know how this thing just appeared in my brain. It just The idea just occurred to me and I, I wrote it down and it made sense. I think I may have even discussed it with Stephen. Um, because I discuss all my performances with Stephen, mm-hmm. <laughs> and and, um, and that's Stephen Baycroft, and um, the structure of the performance is such that uh, I start off. I'm wearing um, funeral attire from um, Ghana, so that's composed of a a black headscarf. Um, plus like a, a a black top and skirt and this this got they, they call this this top and skirt a cabine slit which is like it's like a the skirt when they're made for you they're kind of molded to the shape of the female form so they kind of go in the fishtail down um, and then um, there's a red cloth that you wrap around your waist right and um the idea behind wearing funeral attire was so that it's like, almost like a, a, a laying to rest in some sort of way. It's like, a, it's a ritual, like, like a funeral, a ritual. Anyway, um, so the composition of the performance is, is quite an intimate, small intimate space. And I read from the text the um, the well selected parts of the text to the audience, um, and after I finished reading, and the, the the finishing of the reading wasn't any defined point. I just kept on reading until it felt right. And in the first performance, that was reading for about an hour, mm. right? Um, and then I invited the audience to come and cut the clothes off. And that cutting was a direct reference to Yoko Ono's cut piece. Um, in Yoko Ono's cut piece, she's talking about the violence against the female body. She's talking about, yeah, violence against the female body. And in mine, I was specifically talking about violence um, in relation to the scramble for Africa, the dividing up of Africa, uh, the African body, violence against the African body through colonial atrocities, all of those kinds of things were the, the direct references. And um, so the first time this was obviously in London and the audience cut the clothes off and as the clothes fell off, you could see that my skin looks like it's covered in blood. It wasn't blood, it was paint that I, I used food dye to make it look like blood but it was dried um, and then <clears throat> I used shea butter from Ghana to reactivate the blood the, the um, uh, paint and make it look sort of wet again and then on the floor were strewn large sheets of uh, the text which was 
So not necessarily the text that I was reading, but text from those, those books was just laid out on the floor. And when I say large, I mean like, what's the size? It's kind of, I don't know the, the size, had to, is it A0? It's kind of like half my body size. Yeah. Something like that. Um, and then I just laid down and printed myself onto, so everything didn't fall off. There was some of my top still on, but just laid down and printed my body onto those sheets of paper. So then you can get this kind of spectre, these, this kind of ghostly image that is laying on top of the, of the text. Um, and in that particular performance, after the, after the body printing, I, I went back to more reading and then I went and did some more body printing again. Um, and then that was it. And it was a really intense experience, deeply, deeply emotional. And um, I did that performance three times. So once in London, another time in Oslo, and the final time was in New York. So the one I did in Oslo followed the same pattern as the one in London. The one I did in New York was a different story. So the New York one, and I think it may have had something to do with the political type climate, because this was... January 2020, right? And <laughs> so there was all this stuff bubbling up in the States. And we didn't even know that COVID was actually there at that time, mm -hmm. right? Um, and so there's all this tension. You could feel it there. And so with, with the one in New York, I think the reading was for only about half an hour. Um, and then I think it was even less than that. And then I invited the audience to come and do the cutting. And some audience members just did as, as they, you know, they followed what everybody else was doing. And then one guy came and he cut an edge of his own um, shirt. He literally cut a piece of his shirt and dropped it on the floor, handed the scissors to someone else. A few other people copied him. One woman came and cut a piece of her own hair. She literally pulled her fringe down and cut her own hair. And then finally this guy got the scissors, and he threw it to the back of the room so violently, yeah? So you heard this big bang to hit the back of the room. It didn't go anywhere near me or any other audience member. Um, and then I then had to, obviously, that stage of the performance is now finished. I can't continue with that anymore. And my clothes weren't all off. So I then had to move on to the next phase of the performance and do the body printing, blah, blah, blah. Finish the performance. And then when I came upstairs, I mean, my performance practice involves a ritual in which I fast for at least 24 hours prior to performance to prepare, because it, get, it focuses the mind for me. And, um, and I think there's something that happens when you go into, um, when your, your body switches into ketosis in terms of the fuels that you're burning as well. I think that happens more after 48 hours, but... Once your body goes into ketosis, well, for me, anyway, I get a, a different kind of energy, right? Um, and the, that plus the normal build-up that you would get for a performance anyway just makes for something quite special. So yeah. that's why I do that for performances. And um, I came upstairs, so the performance is finished, so all that adrenaline has 
it's weird because you, you get this high when the performance is finished, so you're still like that. And then, and then you get crashed and just have to eat. So I'm still in the high phase, but I knew that the crash was coming. I wanted to speak to people, but I found the guy who threw the scissors. Even though I couldn't see into the audience, the, gallery, the gallerist told me who he was. So I went to speak to him. And this guy just started shaking and burst into tears in front of me. And I had to hug him until he calmed down. And he, all he kept on saying was, I just couldn't keep watching them do that to you. Mm. I couldn't. I had to stop it. Said, what do you mean? He said that he felt that he had to protect me somehow. And he said that, I, I don't remember where he's from, it may be the Philippines or something like that. And he said, you see this bandana I'm wearing on my head? I said, yeah. He said, my mum gave this to me. This is a part of my culture, right? What you're wearing, I can see that's a part of your culture. If someone came and they were cutting this thing off my head, I don't know what I would do. Mm. And, and so he said that he somehow felt like, even though in his head he knew that this is a performance, it's not real, it's a performance, but to him it was too violent mm. and he had to put a stop to it. And he probably felt that it was rooted in something very personal too. Yeah, so, yeah. So yes, performance, but performance rooted in, you know, what's most yeah. real. Yeah, exactly. And he got it because the thing is that 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 um, costume was given to me by my mum. Mm. So they're all handmade for my mum. So they, they don't fit me because my mum's tiny. She's <laughs> she's five feet tall, and I'm like five foot six and a half. Um, but um, they were given to me by my mum because in the last few years she's taken her religion a lot more seriously and uh, part of her religion says that she's not supposed to wear these kind of ceremonial ritual kind of clothes because it contradicts something. I don't really understand it. But So she gave me an entire suitcase of these things and I said, you do understand I'm going to be using these in performances because I was going to go and get them made especially. Yeah. So you do understand I'm going to be using these in performances and they are going to get destroyed. Is that okay? She said, it's fine, I don't care about them anymore. Mm. Do what you want with them. I was going to throw them away anyway. I was like, wow. Mm -hmm. So, even though, I think it would be a different thing if my mum gave them to me um, as a special gift. Do you see what I mean? Mm -hmm. Because she was discarding them, that's what kind of gave me the permission to do that. So it didn't, doesn't feel like that for me even though the performance is and it's an emotional journey that I go on when I do that kind of performance yeah. but it didn't feel it didn't feel like um trauma trauma that side of it didn't feel traumatic because I knew that these in my mind these clothes have the purpose of being used in this ritual performance mm -hmm. cutting process so it's fine um we arranged to meet again so i came back and met him the following day at the gallery and we sat down and we had a chat and he said to me do you feel like um do you feel like this is um like you're sacrificing yourself for the for the work and up until that point, I hadn't thought about it like that before. But it is. It's a ritual sacrifice. That performance especially is a ritual sacrifice. Um, and so that was, like a, that was like a moment when he said that, where I had this 
this moment of perceptive clarity, this realisation that, um, I wouldn't go as far as to say it was an epiphany, but um, yeah, it was definitely a moment of perceptive clarity where all of a sudden it was really clear that that was what this was, even though I hadn't intended for it to be that. Mm. I had no conception that it could be that powerful, you know. Um, yeah, so that's that performance. And I guess that comes back to what Rachel was getting at. Yes. In her critique. Yes. The sheer life and gravity of that. And, I mean, let me make sure I pronounce it right, Sankofa? Mm-hmm. It's incredible. Can you just tell us a little bit about that aspect of it? Because it's, that blew me away. And oh. I, my mum is like a medium and does... Does she? Yeah, so, so, so I'm always interested in, in that stuff. And um, But that, that aspect of it really, really grabbed me. Ah, okay. So Sankofa is um, it's an ancient Ghanaian symbol. So there were, there were these symbols in um, Ghanaian, I want to say cosmology, that are really, really old. And each of them has a different meaning. Um, and, and they have behind them these, um, they're like parables, I suppose. Um, and the meaning of Sankofa is to go back and pick up that which you have forgotten. So the symbol is, uh, well, there are two symbols for it, actually. There's one that looks like a heart with that the ends kind of curl inside the, the, the middle of the heart, they kind of curl inward, and then at the bottom, there's the curls. And then the other symbol is um, what looks like a bird, a giant bird that has got its head turned around and it's picking up an egg from its back. Um, and, and what that means is, essentially, it's, it's important to understand where you've come from, it's important to understand your history, so that you do not repeat the same mistakes from the past in the present and you can create a better future. Because if you don't understand, if you have no conception of what's been before you, you are doomed to make the same mistakes because we're all human and we see it happen time and time again. Um, And so I try to have that at the core of everything that I do in my practice, especially now. Now I'm I'm moving into this this phase of deep research of all these books and things. Um, because I, I find that when I read stuff, it stimulates other ideas as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and that relates to not only, like, obviously this colonial stuff, but also um, art history. And I'm not an art historian by any stretch of the imagination at all. I have no training. However, uh, I, when it, especially when it comes to performance, I like to... Um, look at my predecessors and see um, if my ideas relate to them, if there's anything I, I can bounce off, if I can have a conversation with them, add something to that conversation. Do you see what mm. I mean? Um, so I'm not kind of repeating things in an obvious way. Mm. I see you're also a part of a history untold. Is that something that was influenced by your own journey of finding out? Ah, the History Untold yes. exhibition. Yeah. yeah, no, that that was um, so uh, Signature African Art Gallery in Mayfair. 
the director Khalil approached me because he saw my piece Rebirth of Amma at 154 Art Fair in 2020. And um, he had this idea for this exhibition and he collaborated with rugby, the rugby player Mauro Itoje um, on it because Mauro Itoje is involved in this campaign to encourage schools to really teach history properly. And what I mean by properly is to include all stories rather than just one story or the story of the oppressor or however you want to call it. Um, and um, and uh, yeah, so he had this idea to do this exhibition with artists from Africa and its diaspora, um, where the work specifically had some kind of historical narrative, I suppose. Um, and and so. When he approached me, he asked me to make something for it specifically rather than just showing something. And he he gave me the whole ground floor to do this installation. And basically, I um, I made a piece. That's the one that I where I collaborated with um, uh, Peter Ajay. Peter Ajay is actually the brother of um, or Sir David Ajay. Now I think he's a, been knighted, the the architect. Mm. Um, and Peter Ajay, he he's also Ghanaian, and like I say, he's absolutely brilliant sound artist and DJ he's one of my favourite DJs actually I've been to a few of his parties oh my god <laughs> <laughs> he's amazing um, but yeah I, so when I approached him I, I said to him because I've, I've known him for a few years and I the minute that we met actually we said one day we're going to work together I didn't know in what capacity but I was like I, I need to work with this guy and and I've been having all these I've been having ideas for a while about um sound works and works that in, in that include more of the senses than just sight so sound mm -hmm. smell taste all of that um and um so this i saw this as an opportunity to collaborate with him and that's when i i got uh, a relative what so one of my dad's cousins went to interview his uncle in ghana so that uncle is a had a brother who died a few years ago who fought in World War Two, and the story was interesting because the story that my dad had and that my dad told me was that this uncle was actually kidnapped by the British forces at the age of 17 thrown in the back of a van yeah and sent somewhere to go and, and and be trained and then he ends up in Burma fighting the Japanese in Burma, which was the bloodiest battle, <laughs> yeah. right, in the middle of a jungle. Um, and uh, so when my dad told me this story, I was like, what? And he survived. He survived and he came back and it, he was changed. He was completely crazy. It really seriously impacted him. And my dad said that he met him when he was a kid and he used to be scared of him because he was just, you know, my dad was born in 1950. So... Um, when my dad told me that story, I recorded him and my original idea was to have a sound piece of my, of my dad and I having this conversation and him telling me this story. But then when I learned that his brother was still alive, then my dad sent one of his cousins to go and interview this man who died last year, like I said, at 105 years old. So we got him, that was 2021. 
So a year later, he died. Imagine that. Mm. Um, and he interviewed him. He didn't speak a word of English, but he had the most incredible voice. Oh my God, this man's voice, right? And he told the story, but his version of the story is different to my dad's version of the story, which I found interesting. So his version of the story was that actually it was a source of pride to go and fight. So he volunteered. But then what happened was, I mean, he was a kid. He's talking 17 years old. Can you imagine being 17 years old and thinking, yeah, I'm going to fight in a war? That's not even your own war. Yeah. Right. Um, so when it came down to, to it, he was scared. And um, so he tried to defect, but they, because he had already gone and conscripted himself, they, they, they found him and, and they took him in the van. So that was the story of the, the van bit. Um, and, and he said to his girlfriend at the time, you know, um, wait for me, mm-hmm. you know. Um, so there's this whole other romance side of the thing that I haven't got to the bottom of yet. I'm trying to find out. Um, and so the piece... The, the sound element of the piece was, was Peter taking his voice and there were all these other sounds that, that were going on because he was in the middle of his compound and there were chickens running around and plates mm. clattering and all sorts of things going on in the background and then he got his voice speaking in tree, which is my dad's language, telling this story. So he tells the story, then Peter, Peter uses all of those sounds within the piece um, and then brings in all these other orchestral sounds um, and makes this gorgeous sound piece to go with the work, right? And then the physical work that I made took me three months or something, or four months to make. And it's, it's my biggest piece that I've made. And that's five metres by four metres. Um, and and it's the same kind of structure as Rebirth of Amma. It's composed of eight panels, but... Each panel is bigger. So the rebirth of Amma is each panel is two meters by one meter. This one is um, uh, 1.5 meters by two meters, 2.1 meters. Eight panels, four at the bottom and four at the top, stitched together. Um, and then um, and we wrapped it around like a scaffold piece. Um, and then had the speakers in the in the room like booming the the sound of the of the um, the sound piece that Peter made. And when we got into the stu- into the gallery and Peter first play- played me the sound piece, he literally played it to me when we were installing. Because I trusted him so much, I didn't need to mm. hear it. I just, I, I just, you know, he he did a sound piece with, um, oh my God, I can't remember this artist's name now. Um, it's a Nigerian artist who showed, she's Nigerian-American and she showed at The Curve in Barbican a couple of years ago and it was the most gorgeous exhibition and that sound piece was just incredible. So when I heard that, that's when I was like, I, Peter, (laughs) right? (laughs) Um, And uh, anyway, yeah, so he played it for the first time when we were installing and I just burst into tears. I was just like, wow, this is, this is, this is more than I could have even imagined. So yeah, it was great. So I'm definitely going to collaborate with him again. But yeah, so that was the piece that I had in that show mm. and to connect with you know to connect to your own roots like that must a be so empowering but also i guess you know why why do we not have a broader as you know as you guys are working for this project you know a broader spread we should be teaching those kind of histories to all people oh, really yeah. and opening yeah. it up because yeah. 
you know, I sit here and hear that story from you and it adds something to my life. You know, like we, not, we should be sharing that further and wider with yeah. everyone, really. Yeah. You know, yeah. especially with the, the divisions we have, you know, in society for myriad reasons now. Yeah. And go somewhere to, to helping people to see a clearer picture. You yeah. Know, and, and it's so deeply a part of the British story. This is what I don't understand. This is like, you have, you have Africans, you have Indians who are, you know, all colonised people fighting for the Brits. Mm-hmm. So it's a part of the British story. This isn't, this isn't an African story. And the Indians, that's not an Indian story, right? It's a British story. Mm-hmm. So like this, that is part of Itish, British history. So it should be told as such. It shouldn't be, and even to, to call it um, African history or black history when it comes to those stories that relate to the empire, it, that, that is not the, the full thing. It's not accurate. So I, I think that there needs to be a change of, of, um, of perception um, because once that perception is changed, as soon as you start having these stories and opening up these, these histories, then people have a, a real, a deeper understanding of, of why certain people are here. Yeah, <laughs> right? Because then, then, so maybe if we were learning that stuff in primary school, those bullies wouldn't have been telling me I should go back to my own say, country. I was going to say, yeah, it, it, would, it, would, it would even that stuff out, yeah. wouldn't it? And, you know, make people think twice about yeah. silly, silly statements and comments and yeah. behaviours. And, uh, but no, I think it's amazing. And actually, not, I'm just incredibly inspired by that performance media too. You know, I, I had a friend on the show recently who's a dancer and a choreographer. This was something that came up as part of the research was the innate value of performance and mm. dance, and actually, you know, it's still got this perception like a lot of the arts where oh yeah, you know, you go and do that your hobby kind of thing. But I suppose it goes back to what you were saying about your parental perception of of art. Mm. But actually, there's a lot of research and study that goes to show that literacy and maths and all these other grades go through the roof and engagement and acceptance and tolerance and and relationships and empathy all these things are go up through the roof when when kids study are given access to drama and dance and performance because it's a different language and it enables them to do many things i suppose but but to express themselves in different ways to Um, to connect with other people, to break down barriers. There's, exactly. there's just so it, it just makes me really sad that it's still just this marginalised thing in education, despite all this research that shows quite the contrary. Yes, you and know. It, it allows it allows kids and anybody to also access a different part of the brain as well and open mm-hmm. up, like you say, empathy. One thing I th- that is really important to me about performance is that, and you you understand this when you go to a really powerful performance and if you're the performer as well, is that in the process of performance, there's something really magical that happens when it's done properly, right? And when the audience are engaged. When, when you're using the body in performance, because most people, unless you're a psychopath, right, and you don't know how to empathise, most people can empathise with another human being that's in front of them, yeah? So there's another body in front of them engaging in a performance. There's something that happens in terms of the, 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 the barrier when it comes to telling a story that breaks down between the audience and the artist to allow this exchange of knowledge so you get this change in... Uh, uh, 
how could I describe it? Like, okay, so you, there's something that happens in terms of intersubjectivity, right? So such that the, the audience member, members can go away changed in some way, right? And I gave you the extreme example of the guy who was crying and he threw the, the thing, yeah. but I've had so many people, they come up to me afterwards, they're in floods of tears, they're, they're hugging me, they're telling me stories that actually have nothing to do with the performance, but have everything to do with them because it's opened up something in them, right? Um, and so, yeah, and, and that's something that really powerful paintings can do, actually, but it's quite rare it's much easier to get that kind of connection through something like performance, in my opinion, mm -hmm. and in my experience as well. Um, and it's, it's, yeah, it is, it's something really quite special um, and edifying. And at the same time, for me, um, doing performance, that's why I don't do them so often now. I haven't done a performance since 2020. Um, but in 2019, I did 10 performances in that year. And by 2020, I suddenly realised I was exhausted. That's heavy going, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It turns a lot. I was exhausted. So it does, it takes a lot out of me. But yeah, there's something really quite magical about performance as a, um, as a means of expression. And each time I do a performance, I'm changed and I learn something whether that's something about the subject matter or something about myself, are gaining confidence as well. Um, and, uh, yeah, gaining confidence in so many ways in terms of using my body in that way as this mm. tool I to saw, say I saw you something. describe it as sweeping release, and I thought that was fantastic. As? Sweeping release. Yeah. Yeah, I yeah. thought that was a, such a provocative yeah. way yeah, of yeah, yeah. It is. It is. saying it. It yeah. is. Yeah, no, I just, yeah, it's, it's, it is, it's amazing. Because I remember when I first read about the project, just, just it felt just, and just seeing the video clip, just, just thinking, wow, this is another level. And it just, I don't, it's not always a direct thing. You can't always articulate what it is that, that grabs you about performance. But by being there in that space and feeling that intimacy and that, what you're putting into that and you channeling your history and everything else, you don't always need to you can feel it and experience mm -hmm. it. And like you say, it can open up something in a person and they, they don't necessarily need to know why, but that's the joy of that medium, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. And it's just incredible. And um, so that we all work with Infems too. And, and uh, oh God, I've got my BBFA. There we go. <laughs> the Black British Female Artists Collective. Yeah. Is that something that's come from, is that after performances? Is that, is that something more recent? Or? No, so... Um... The BBFA Collective was founded in 2015 by Enam Um So Enam, she's a, a friend. And uh, 2015, at the time, things are massively different now, which is amazing. But in 2015, which is not that long ago, um, we felt like, um, as black women, black British women specifically, completely ignored. Mm. Um, and we felt that there was this thing, there was, there was this bubbling that was happening um, on the art scene um, with regards to an interest, increased interest in art from Africa and its diaspora in particular. So he had Bonhams and doing the African art auction and um, Sotheby's was gaining interest and um, 
galleries opening up who were representing specifically artists from Africa and the diaspora. Um, and but we felt like so much of the attention of the attention was on the on men as opposed to women and um and we were trying to make inroads all individually and nothing was really wasn't working how we wanted it to work and maybe we were a bit impatient but um and then had this idea that there was perhaps strength in numbers and so we formed the collective and um, we started doing exhibitions internationally and projects internationally and um, well, I wouldn't go as far as to say nationally in the UK, probably more London-centric, but um, um, we found that by working together we were able to work, like for example we did a project with the Tate, um, we did a project with Adidas in Portland, Oregon, you know, uh, we did a project um, with a um, a really amazing foundation in Ghana, Accra, called Nubuke Foundation, which is really at the centre of the of the Ghanaian art scene. And by doing these projects, we um, we were able to get access to a larger audience than we would have been able to access individually, okay. um, and give ourselves uh, more of a, a platform. And originally, the plan was that we wanted to um, provide mentoring um, and some kind of incubator program to help other artists coming up behind us. But since then, fortunately, our um, respective careers have um, really um, taken off to the extent that we, we haven't had the time to do that. Uh, I've had one mentee. Um, but not specifically through BBFA Collective as someone who came to me individually. Um, but yeah, so we, we're kind of at a point now where, I mean, we're all still friends. Um, the thing still exists as an Instagram page, uh -huh. um, but we're not so active as a collective anymore. Each of us is doing our own, our own things. Um, and then Infem's Collective um, was formed in 2020. Uh, it was officially ratified here in this flat at the dining table over dinner um, and and that was um, five members and it's infem stands for intersectional feminist collective and um, and we really got together because we we were originally working on an exhibition together and then when we started talking about the exhibition we were like this sounds like a collective so we might as well just form as a collective um, and the original aims and obje objectives were to um, not only to give ourselves a, a, a broader platform as people who identify as intersectional feminists, um, but also to give space to other people, other women artists who were having um, difficulties, so not necessarily young, but maybe new to the to the industry, um, to exhibit with us. So anytime we had shows in different cities. Uh, or countries, then we would invite local artists to come and show with us. Um, we had our first show was actually in Portugal, um, in Lisbon, and um, we've had a London show, and we recently closed one in Berlin. Um, but I left Infem's Collective in December, so I'm no longer a member. Um, but I'm still like as uh, there as a a founding member, but um, I'm no longer an active member of the collective mm. just because um, I, I just felt like this, the structure was changing in a way that um, 
wasn't compatible with the way that I saw collectives operating. So mm. I excused myself. <laughs> yeah. yeah. No, but you know what you said there about BBFAs is there's something about there's something I love about that kind of intermittent involvement where, where you can come and go when, when things feel right or when mm-hmm. those overlaps happen organically. Yeah. And it doesn't diminish your involvement with it if that's quiet for a while. It's just, yes. And, it, you know, it helps to flesh out your identity as an artist too when exactly. people kind of come to discover you or engage with your work. It helps, you know, it, it just helps build your identity, doesn't yeah. it? Yeah. With another facet. Well, I think I've covered more things I wanted to talk about. That was incredible. I'd love you know, your story you know the nice thing is like I sort of loosely know people sometimes when I come to the podcast such as yourself but without ever having talked about the background and it's a great way to do that so I think yeah I'd love that mm. hearing all those things so I think you're doing some really important stuff I think it's incredibly inspiring and I, and I hope you continue to, to grow and thank next you <laughs> thank you oh and where can people check out your work I always, I always nearly forget that on every episode <laughs> <laughs> yeah so um, on Instagram it's just my name um, Adelaide Damoa my last name is spelled D-A-M-O-A-H and uh, I have a website uh, I have a Facebook page as well um yeah, that's it. And then I also have a mailing list, which you can join through the website if you want. Um, and uh, that's where I send updates on upcoming exhibitions and things. But that also goes on the Instagram. So. Super. Well, thank you very much for your time. It's been a joy. You're welcome. <laughs> it's been a pleasure. Yeah, fun. Big thank you to Adelaide for taking the time preparing for her upcoming exhibition um, her lifelong ongoing project confronting the colonizer is a thing of beauty and a great example of um, just how many mediums we can work with when we find our calling we find the voice and the things we want to say therefore it's always so important to start with our personality and our feelings and when we get that straight within and we know what we want to say we know what we want to work around the media becomes secondary but it can just open up so many doors and I just love that story, you know, the way that Adelaide dealt with bullying and she was pushed into physical confrontation, but how it strengthened her as a human and how adversity can work in our favour if we uh, apply radical acceptance. That's something I learned about recently on uh, Stutz, a film on Netflix at the moment. I've been shouting about that recently and I do recommend going and watching it. It's Jonah Hill's documentary profiling his therapist, Phil Stutz. And I've recently got Phil's book, The Tools, which is just empowering and and it's been life-changing for me. It's helped me to get my head around negative experiences and external negative circumstances and switch from a defeatist, kind of dejected mindset looking at the way the world is and just regain some energy and get some creative flow back in my life and see some positivity. And I recommend checking out Stutz. It's a fantastic film and thanks to Jonah Hill for actually doing that because I think the thinking was that you know, therapy at that level is uh, crazy expensive and it isn't something everyone can afford and he recognised that and he wanted to make this film so that he could share the principles of the work with people because there's a mental health crisis going on, you know? Anyway, um, I hope you enjoyed this. Big thank you again to Adelaide Demoa. Thank you to the founder and supporter of the show, illustrationx.com. Check out their global range of illustration and animation portfolios now at illustrationx.com. At we are Illustration X on social. Get us your feedback. Hello at bentallon.com or at bentallon on social platforms. I'm on LinkedIn a lot. I'm on Twitter occasionally. I'm on Instagram most of the time. Cheers, guys. Thank you for listening. Have a great week and stay creative.